Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. You don't have to be good at anything to start. Get out of your own way and just start. So you did your own makeup in all those photographs. And so did most black models. No self-serving black model who was working could go to a job without having something in her pocket because most of the time the makeup artist had no clue how to do our makeup. And forget about hair. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. Today, we have a very special conversation between the Somali supermodel, Iman, and our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, who talk about Iman's experience as one of fashion's first black models. Iman stands out as a trailblazer in the space. She was one of the first black models to break out on global runways and followed her successful modeling career with a cosmetics business designed for women of color. But while Iman helped to pave the way for more representation in our industry. She also speaks about the first-hand racism and discrimination that she experienced. Here's Iman, Inside Fashion. Iman, welcome to BLF Live. 
Thank you for having me. And as I said on Instagram, I love your hair. Don't cut it. <laughs> <laughs> it it's kind of Samson now. I don't know what I, well, I, I can't cut it. We don't we can't go to barbers. We've been closed. You know, they've all been closed for months. I know, I know, I know. Thank God to wigs for us girls. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> How you, you're coming up to your anniversary in New York of um, of the, the, the lockdown. How has the year been for you? It's been challenging. You know, I went in on March without understanding what is really the lockdown would be about and how difficult it was going to be. I went upstate to my house in the country for a week and ended up being there for the whole year, with the exception of coming back once, you know, every couple of months for a doctor visit or something. But really been challenging because it has been isolating. I've never suffered depression or anxiety, but I had a lull of depression, you know, hanging around. And at the beginning, you couldn't see even friends because you didn't know where anybody has been. And, uh, you know, and I don't have underlying health issues, but it was just, you didn't know much. Uh, so it, I, I felt much safer being upstate because I can go hiking, I can go be outside without being stuck in an apartment in the city. So I, you know, I was under those people who had, privilege in that way that I had another house. Uh, you know, I had friends who were stuck in the city who have three, four children, little children, you know, in apartments, schools closed, you know, businesses closed. It's really hard. The only thing I could, when I came back to the city this couple of weeks ago, that, you know, walking around in Soho, where I live in the city, is how, the amount of businesses that have closed. Mm. The only thing I can compare it to is, is uh, 9-11. When 9-11 happened, that's the amount of small businesses closed. But the restaurants, the businesses that have closed across the board for blocks and blocks and blocks in New York, uh, in Soho, where I live, it's disheartening and, uh, and depressing. But the good news is that uh, uh, finally the Biden administration have passed the bill and people are getting, be getting some money and, uh, you know, and business, especially also restaurants are going to get some money. So people are, he's trying to, the administration is trying to bring some of the businesses back, but um, it is the, the relentless and not understanding of uh, people that, that they really still have to mask. Although the, uh, you know, we're getting all our vaccines. I got my first vaccine a couple of weeks ago. Oh, you do great. Um, so, you know, it's just, you know, just the regular things, wash your hands, put your mask on, you know, just give it time to, for us, for all of us to get vaccinated. So, you know, it's been a year where, because it was such a, you know, this, nobody's ever had an experience like this before and people were at home and they couldn't do anything else. So it was a year where People say, I'm going to I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to learn a language. I'm going to learn how to play an instrument. I'm going to acquire some skill I never had. Um, I started singing, which was kind oh, of good. <laughs> Did you do anything this year that you haven't done before that you'd always wanted to do? Uh, actually, I started painting, but it was not something that I've ever wanted to do uh, because, you know, I had no talent for it. I've never tried it. I had no interest in it. I love paintings. I love art. My husband was a painter. Uh, my daughter is a painter. So, um, you know, but I was not inclined that way. You know, I admired their, what they do, but I've never done it. So I took up on painting uh, around um, April, May last year. And, um, and one thing I've realized is that it really, you don't have to be good at anything to start. You know, you just start, get out of your own way and just start. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, my only problem now is that I have no idea what I'm doing, but I would love to take classes, but there is no, nobody around. So I'm like, how come no, I can't find a private teacher? So, you know, like, you know, but there is no connection. You can, there is no place that you can find people, but hopefully by May, we hear that everything is going, everybody, at least in, the, in New York, is going to be vaccinated. And so maybe in, uh, in the summer, I'll get a, a, a tour to help me. What's your style? What's, I like charcoal. Oh. I like charcoal. Good. Yeah, I like charcoal. I, I like the moodiness of it. You know, I, I like either nude charcoals or um, 
landscape charcoals. So that's what I'm, um, you know, hopefully <laughs> be good at it, try to try it, yeah. David was a huge collector of painting, of painting. And, um, you know, he was one of those people, he didn't collect cars, he didn't collect homes. Painting was his thing, he loved painting. And so uh, we had a lot of uh, diverse group of painters, uh, you know, we, and, and had some in the storage. So when he passed away, one of the, we, we sold some of the art that he wanted us to sell. And I went into the storage to replace some of the stuff that were taken out of the apartment and the house. And so, and I found all these paintings by David. I was like, why are they in storage? <laughs> because he had other paintings. <laughs> so what I did is that I framed all those and now I live with them. Yes, I have them. Incredibly accomplished. Yes, he, oh, and you have no idea the amount of paintings he did that, and there are beautiful charcoals he did of me that I've, I've found in there. You know, I mean, I was aware of them, but you know, you know, We've been married for over 25 years. So, you know, but he'll always do paintings of me, char charcoal paintings of me. Maybe that's why I like the charcoal. So he would do all these portraits, uh, nudes of me. And so I have all that. But what do you think about the, the you know, that maybe in the future, this work yeah. is going to become something, you know, that maybe people who won't even know who he is at that point will find the pictures Yes. And you know that reassessment that history does that fascinates me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's never uh, taken himself seriously as a painter. That's why he had him in storage. But he is very accomplished. He's very, very good at it. He's very good at it. And I'm hoping that um, Lexi, our daughter, is going to take on that. Yeah. That's how, I think that is where her strength is, you know. Are you a believer in destiny? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I met David, I, I was always a David's music fan, you know, so I've been to all to his concerts since I arrived in 1976 in New York. So every concert that came through, through the city, I've been to, to all his concerts. And I was invited backstage, but I never went backstage, you know. But yeah, so all of a sudden, I, I stopped modeling in 89, uh, 1991. I moved to L.A., completely distance myself from the business so that I can just assess what I want to do next. And I go to LA and um, I, there's a photographer called Greg Gorman invited me to his, uh, to his house for dinner. And there was a couple of other people there. And I met this hairdresser called Teddy. And Teddy then invited me a couple of weeks later to uh, his uh, birthday party, as he said. And it was at a restaurant. So I got there. And there was no party, there were only four people, Teddy and his boyfriend and David. So it was a blind date, that's how we met. He, and uh, Teddy was his hairdresser. So he set us up and uh, literally we've been together since then. You know, so yeah, I mean, there is no way that, that that was gonna happen if I didn't move to LA, if I, you know, all that, and really. So I do believe that, it. That is the best blind date in history. Exactly. But I also think before then, walking down a street in Nairobi. Yes. And you could have been, as somebody pointed out once when they're writing about, you could have been on another street, but you happened to be walking on a street where Peter Beard saw you. Exactly. And that's really where it all started, isn't it? Oh, uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, if I didn't become a refugee in 1972, I was majoring in political science. I would never have become a model or I would never have been in Kenya for to meet even Peter, right? Yeah. So yeah, I totally believe in destiny. I totally believe that things happen, that there were predestined things that will happen. However your life, you think your life is going this way and a change of road changes everything. Do you think about that now for what's coming? Do you have the same kind of outlook on the future? Uh, no, I, because I've never had an outlook for the future, even those times. I've never thought I will meet David and, uh, you know, we'll get married. I never thought that I'll meet Peter Beard and end up a model above all things. <laughs> because I've never seen a fashion magazine. I've never, know, I've never known a model. I, have no, I had no idea that this even existed. So, no, I don't have an outlook for that, but I've always have, uh, because of things that have happened to me like this, um, I always think of it, you know, surprises. Surprises are on the way. Yeah. You know, you post on your Instagram, you post those little, those homilies, those things that are 
those reassuring statements. The, what, the last one was the world told her to be invisible and she heard be invincible, or, which is yeah. very much what your, mo your mother's message to you always was. And I just think of the balls you had. Some guy stops you on the street, which right away is kind of strange. Yes. And, and ask you to, you know, go with him and be a model. And, and what would it take? And you said $8,000 to pay your tuition. I mean, yeah. that's pretty ballsy. Well, he's the one who, who said I would pay you because I actually thought he was he was trying to pick me up. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. <laughs> and, extremely good looking. <laughs> yeah, he was extremely good looking, but I was not interested. So, you know, and he kept on talking to me and walked with me. And uh, he said, then, you know, I'd like to take pictures. So I was like, uh, the only pictures I've seen of girls were like my brother's Playboy magazines. And I was like, I'm not that kind of a girl. Uh, and he said, no, I'll take pictures just from, you know, from, you know, really just portraits of you. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I was still not interested. And then he said, uh, I will pay. Now, mind you, I was, I was, I was doing two, I was doing two jobs. I was waitressing. I was a, a translator for the Ministry of Tourism brochures uh, on safaris. I could not pay for my tuition. Uh, I was a refugee, just arrived in Kenya. So when he said, I'll pay you, that stopped me in my tracks. And I said, well, how much? Then he said, well, how much do you want? And I said, $8,000. That's my tuition. That was exactly my tuition. I didn't even think to ask for 10. <laughs> but he did. He did. Needless to say, I never really finished even the two. I came to the United States. And I came for a visit, actually. Yeah because I had no idea what I was walking into. So I thought I'll check it out and see what this is about. And here I am still. <laughs> so what did you walk into when you, when, you, when you moved to New York? What did you walk into at that time? I walked into a, a very foreign uh, business that was foreign to me, a business that, uh, that I thought the, a lot of young girls um, had no sense of self. You know, I had a sense of self. Uh, I was raised by uh, my mother from early on. Um, being a Muslim girl, my father always told me that I could do anything and even better than my two brothers. So that had that male encouragement in my family all the time. My father always believed in me. And then my mom, who was wanted to make very sure that I had a sense of worth, right? my own sense, sense of worth, because she thought if I, she can empower me in that, I can always make the right decision for myself if I had a sense of self-worth, right? So, so that's what she instilled in me, heavily instilled in me, to be able to walk away from anything that doesn't serve you well, regardless how enticing it is, whether it's a man or a work or whatever it is. So I came with that, so that was, I think, my superpower coming as a, as a young girl who didn't know anything about this business, but I had a sense of self-worth, right? So one of the things that really happened to me in the job was that I found out that actually they were not paying the same rate Caucasians and African-American models, that African-American models were being paid less. So that was my first decision I made as a model. I told them that I'm not going to work. And I actually took a hiatus of three months. I didn't want to work. I said, because, I, and the, I remember Wilhelmina agency and Wilhelmina herself was, uh, he, she was around. And, I, and she, we had a talk and I said, I want to be paid for services rendered. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I am, I'm, I'm not talking about black and white. I wasn't even thinking about black and white. I thought, I said, I'm doing the same job that the Caucasian model is doing. So. I want a paid service rendered. Why am I getting paid less for what the same job? So that's when my rate was raised to exactly to be paid as Caucasian models. Who were the who were the Caucasian models who were big at that time that were your sort of competition? I, I can't remember if there is any competition. I can't I can't even remember because obviously I wasn't aware of of the business, so I can't remember who was around. But it was seventy six. In 1976, yeah. I remember Beverly Johnson because yeah. I met her. Yeah. I met her, uh, Beverly Johnson was already uh, the top black model, but yeah, she wasn't being paid as much as the black, as, as, as the white counterparts. 
So who did you have on your side to help you, apart from your own kind of resolve? Did you have any photographers or, or who, no. who, went to, who went to bat for you? Anyone? Beth, Beth Ann Hardison. Oh, okay. Yeah. Beth Ann. Beth Ann yeah. is my closest friend. And uh, when I arrived in 1975, uh, around 76, beginning of 76, I had a go see to go and see Stephen Burroughs, the black designer. And she was his assistant. So I walked there, I walked in there. And at that time, people all believed because Peter said, I, you know, I discovered that in the jungle. I've never seen a jungle in my life. <laughs> but you were a princess, remember? You and I was a princess. <laughs> and also I was a goat herder. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I didn't speak a word of English. And I spoke five languages before I arrived to the United States. So everybody thought of me that I didn't speak English. So everybody was freely speaking in front of me of how I look. How, she's not that tall. She's not that beautiful. She's this and she's not that. that. So uh, uh, Stephen Burroughs gave me a dress and heels to put on. And I put the dress on. And for the life of me, I could not find the balance to put the heels on. Because remember, I have not worn heels. <laughs> so I was pretend I was struggling and Beth Ann saw. And she got on her knees to put the shoes on for me. That small act of kindness that I received that day was what bonded us, me and Beth Ann. And we became the best of friends to the point that she's still in my life and was my maid of honor uh, when I married David. This was after the three months of hiatus or yes. so yeah. where, what was the trajectory from that moment with Stephen Burroughs? Because I, I just remember I've been looking at old fashioned shows um, because I'm working on this book about Gianni Versace and you are in all those shows being the star of the show, like 80s, late 70s? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, well, by then I've become a little bit of a pro. <laughs> <laughs> I, learned, I learned on the job quite fast. I didn't even have working papers. My first fashion show and the way he went around the working papers was that I was a guest, mm. Halston. Mm. Halston knows exactly how to take advantage of whoever is hot, right? I was right on the scene. I could not work for anybody because I didn't have any working papers. So he said that he will hire me as his guest. And I remember walking there, uh, going there uh, with Peter and, uh, uh, you know, in this tower of mirrors, uh, you know, uh, and the ever-present cigarette in his hand, you know, and hand in his pocket, right? Sunglasses middle of uh, the day, <laughs> right? And he said, darling, can you walk? And I said, how the fuck do you think I got here? <laughs> and he said, no, I mean, fashion walk. I said, I had no idea. <laughs> so he, I walked, I, that's the first job I did. And I was terrified because people were so close to you and there were mirrors everywhere. So you had no idea if you were gonna walk into a mirror or, you know, I was terrified, terrified. Um, but that sense of, so is, we have that sense of calmness yeah. from the outside, yeah. like the ducklings, you know, inside we're terrified, but outside like calm. But when that happened then, did you have stylists, fashion editors, did everybody line up then, magazines, was everybody? Yeah, my first job uh, was American Vogue. American Vogue was my first job with Arthur Elbert. Uh, yes, and uh, that was another eye-opening because I, when I arrived, there was a, another Caucasian model, I can't remember her name, and there was a makeup artist. And the makeup artist asked me a perplexing question. And I say perplexing because it was not lost on me that he didn't ask the Caucasian model the same question. He asked me, did you bring your own foundation? I, I was clueless. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I said no. So he proceeded to do her makeup. And then when it came to me, he mixed some products and put it on my face. And, and when I looked in the mirror, I didn't look brown anymore. I looked gray. No. And I was, like, I was horrified and I didn't know what to do, how to fix it. Thank God the pictures were black and white. <laughs> that hides multitude of sins. And, but I learned that day, my image is my parents. 
And I need to take some kind of a control of how I'm going to be projected, how I'm going to be photographed, how I'm going to look, because they're not going to say the photographer didn't know how to light her or, you know, the makeup artist didn't have the right foundation. They'll say, well, she's, she doesn't look good in pictures, right? So my image is my currency. It doesn't matter how I look in real life. It's how I look in pictures. So I went and desperately went to all the stores and tried to find every foundation that had some kind of a tone closer to mine and mix and match and put it on my face and armed with a Polaroid camera, take a picture of myself to see how it will translate into, into the pictures till I had the, some kind of a rough of what I had, what, I, what was available in the market. And, uh, and, I would, and I never went to any job without my own foundation. So you did your own makeup in all yep. those photographs. And so did most, most black models. No self-serving black model who was working could go to a job without having something in her pocket because most of the time the makeup artist had no clue how to do our makeup and forget about hair. This is, that's why most of the pictures you'll see our health are just pulled back because they didn't know what to do with it, you know? So, so yeah, it's a, it's a learning experience because you just have to maneuver and find uh, your place in the system. But with that kind of self-awareness, yeah. did that kind of armor you against all the, the shit that everybody goes to it and, and never mind never mind having to deal with all the you know the racist undertoes and the and the, those things that happen to you as a black model yeah but just the, the things that generally happen to a young woman trying to make her way in the modeling industry you had this self-awareness yes yeah. so you could actually kind of do something uh, do something about it but but yeah. the thing is this is like a lot of people have what like say to me now uh, well, uh, so what did you do? I mean, are you, you can only change the system uh, just in a way, but you can't change a whole system. Uh, for, for example, I'll give you, because, you know, uh, remember the model Gia, lovely, lovely yeah. girl, yeah. lovely girl, but she had her own demons. She was a drag addict. They will prop her. She'll, she'll be late for a job six, seven hours. I mean, I walked out of one of the jobs. Because I, you know, I waited for her for because we were supposed to do something as, together, and I waited for her for for five hours, and they, the editors and the makeup, everybody called the agent. They said they, you know, this and that about her. They, 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 you know, talked behind her back like she was trash, right? And I waited for her, and when she arrived, I walked out of the job, and I told, for lack of better terms not to be uh, vulgar, but I said, find yourself another black girl, find yourself a nigger. I said, I'm not gonna do this. And it was their fault for allowing this to go on, right? Because if the girl is told, you know, we're not gonna work with you and you don't work with her, you know, you, you do not, you know, you do not uh, celebrate uh, uh, the words uh, in a person's character and let them get away. If I did that, trust me, I would not be in the business. They would get rid of me in a day, right? So, uh, so that's what the business is, uh, our own business, it, that is what it is. If you are somebody who's valuable to them, meaning that sells and they like their look, they'll allow you to do, get away with murder, right? While there are people who are on the sidelines who are professionals and want to work and who are never given the chances. Was this in America or was this in Europe? America. So America. Did you know, Gia, Gia never worked that, never uh -huh, went yeah. to work there. Yeah, she couldn't. Was, did you find it was different when you went to work in Europe? Did you find there was a, a, a different attitude to... To, to black get? models, to black, yeah, models. black models. Yeah, yeah. Black models, yes, definitely. Especially the designers. Most designers worked with black models. I mean, like Givenchy, 80% of his filet, especially runway models, were black, right? Mm -hmm. So was Saint Laurent, right? So, so no, the, there was a difference when it came to the business of, especially runway, not necessarily editorial. Editorial, very few of us made it through the editorial, but uh, the runway, yeah, they, 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 they were open to that. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Because I, I, you know, looking at those old Versace shows, for example, we, we're, we're always told that it was around the time of Linda, Christie, Cindy, Naomi, that editorial models made that move to runway but you did runway and editorial yeah. all along I, I did I did and and talking about Versace actually Versace was the only designer and the first designer who actually when I was modeling and I was doing all the, the big designers at that time uh one season called my agency and he said I want her to come to Milan exclusively for me and not work for any other design and I will compensate her for that. And so that he was the first one who knew how to take, uh, how to, he knew how to understand how to make something m- meaningful about of what is going on in the zeitgeist, i.e. then the supermodels, Naomi, Linda, Cindy, you know, uh, the group. Um, but uh, yeah, no, he, he was fully aware of um, what the culture means uh, and what the zeitgeist means and how to make it that. He was making himself, it was not lost on me, he was making himself famous by just doing that, by taking away from Armani and everybody else, the top model, which was me, and she's gonna be only for me. So that makes the news. So he was not, you know, it's, it's not, it wasn't lost on me. And bravo to him. And you could feel the industry changing at that point. Um, yes. And was that, was that exciting or, or was it validating? How did you feel? Well, it, it's, uh, it's validating because at, at, it, all of a sudden at that time, you could feel that um, the, the cult of the model was coming up. 
you know, we were almost more, more important. Like did, uh, I remember Carrie Donovan, remember Carrie? Yes, yeah. yeah. Carrie Donovan, if she yeah. was late for a, for a show, she would rush in to the designer and say, oh, just show me Iman's rack. <laughs> because she will know the best of the of the clothes will be on there, right? So all of a sudden the cult of the model was taking, was coming up. Yeah, so that was exciting because we were being treated differently. And how did you cope with that? I was going, you know, already you had this kind of don't fuck with me self-awareness. So yeah. as stardom beckoned, it yeah. must have been a very interesting situation to be in. It, yeah, it's an interesting situation, but don't don't forget, uh, we are in a business that newness is, is God, right? So you can sit on your laurels and think you're it because somebody always will come after you. There is always a prettier girl. There's always a, you know, there's always somebody who can replace you. So um, I always jokingly have said, you know, when people say, well, you were at the top of your career when you left, why did you leave? I said, there were my Naomi, Linda, it's Christy coming behind me. <laughs> you were actually on the catwalk with them too. Yes, so but I, I'm smart enough to say, I've done my place, I've done so, I'm going to gracefully exit. I've always prouded myself to know when to leave the party. That's the secret of my success. <laughs> wow. If you could put that in a bottle, that would be a big <laughs> I mean, you, but then you, it took you after that awareness about things like foundation and so on that what wasn't right for your skin. It took you quite a while later to launch your answer to that when you did your own cosmetics line? Yeah, I actually launched it after I retired from modeling. I retired from modeling in 1989. And, um, and I have not been to a fashion show since then. Seriously? Seriously. Not one? Not one. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Two things happened. One is that, uh, actually three things. Once is that one, I was trying to, uh, create. I was creating Iman Cosmetics. So I was going from, I was trying to divorce myself from being a model to being a businesswoman, to be taken seriously. So that was one. Second was that I worked with almost all the designers. So it was very difficult to go, who to go to what show. And they all invited me to their shows, but who to go and who not to go. And if I go to all the shows, uh, I know our industry, they'll say, oh, poor thing, she wants to come back. <laughs> uh -huh. And you know, our industry is, is all about the peekaboo, the mystery of it, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna sit this one up. But the one that put the nail on the, the coffin, so to speak, um, was that there were all these B, C, D celebrities who were coming to the shows who are shows were being delayed, like like a Paris Hilton or you know, it's like it's a, what? What do you mean they delayed forty minutes because Shiri wasn't there, you know? So the nature of the business changed in that way, and I wasn't gonna. I, I was like, okay, you know what? I'll watch it online. <laughs> so that's how. you still stayed interested. You still stayed curious about about. Oh, of course. Hey, I'm first about, I'm curious about beauty, but also I, I love, love fashion. Yeah. No, I love fashion. I love fashion. As a girl, as a refugee from Somalia. Yes. Um, oh, definitely. Who made it to the top of the, to the ladder. Um, when you, when you look at that whole moment in your life, what, what's your, what was your happiest? What was, what was when you really felt, when you felt loved and you felt that what you did was appreciated and understood? I personally, I, I, I found that, you know, um, when it's like when people ask me, who's your favorite photographer? It's very difficult, you know, because each one of them have a unique thing to them, right? Uh, as difficult as Hans Führer is, and he is difficult. <laughs> but takes the most amazing pictures. And we did the most amazing campaign, the two of us for, for, for Kenzo, that it's like timeless, right? Avedon, it's completely the opposite, you know? So it's very difficult to, to say that is my favorite photographer. It's like saying, who's my favorite designer? Uh, I, you know, I'm very diverse in what I like, so I, I, I wouldn't. But if there was one designer that I have meshed in with, although, you know, like, uh, I, I mean, I worked from diverse people from why, uh, Yves Saint Laurent to Thierry Mugler, right? So it couldn't be more opposites. And, and each one of them have a different way of, of doing things. So um, they all have a special place in my heart because of how each one of them saw me. 
it is amazing when you find, and this is what the, 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 the fond memories I have, is the, the amazing how they seen the facets and the complexity of me and different parts of me, that I am all of them, all of these women, but uh, they each saw me in a different way that, but that was part of me. So who you said there was one? Terry Mugler. Oh, Terry Mugler. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Terry, Terry, because Terry, Terry was like, if you could think about what MGM used to be, that mm. is Terry. Mm. You know, everything is cinematic, is operatic, you know, is over the top. But also he treats every girl differently, separately, you know, and he's this film director who's creating this, this craziness, right? You know, and, you know, I mean, I was very happy for him when he actually made finally lots of money with Angel with his fragrance, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's amazing to work with, amazing to work with. But then you have Yves Saint Laurent, you know, it is uh, iconic, you know, and how he works. Uh, I mean, I was once... Um, I had the privilege of being the, the muse for a whole collection and I had no idea what it entailed. So I get there and it's for, a, it's for 10 days. And uh, uh, it's like from morning, they give you a, you know, pantyhose with a seam at the back, like it was 1940s, you know, black pumps and a, a robe, a white robe, like a, a lab, like a doctor's lab robe. Uh, and, uh, and then you're walked into this huge room with bolts of fabric. And I'm standing there, take the rope off, and he's cutting swaths of fabric on my body. You know, I've never had that experience with anybody but him uh, and once. Um, and I'll forever, forever remember it. Uh, I mean, I come from a country that we love color, but so, so to me to see all these colors mixed and matched and you think they will clash, but then brilliantly they work. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a truly, truly an experience that very few of us have it. And, you know, when I watch the best models uh, at work, I always think it's the most incredible performance. I mean, I, I feel like they're amazing actresses and I'm not sure that people get enough credit for, for what that job actually involves. I'm a huge fan of, yeah. Of, you know, the and I look at Galliano. I mean, like John Galliano. I mean, you know, I, 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 unfortunately, I retired after he started with Dior and all that. I mean, but, but, you know, for me, it was like the second step to from Terry Mugler to Galliano. It was like theater when you're watching the stage, you know, it and, and, and to give the permission to the models to become that, to act individually rather than, than a group of, you know, uh, and you know, and the, the nature of the runway changed because they used to have a mosh, uh, they, they used to have photographers on the side. Yeah, so you were yeah. aware of people on the side. Yeah. And now it's all a mosh pit, right? So, so but when I love when Galliano creates all this drama on a runway and you know, it goes, you know, everybody starts to become their own persona. It's great. You were never tempted to take it on into, you know, acting. Uh, I did. Ex ex I don't think I I'm a good actress. <laughs> as, as I always said, you've got to cut your losses. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you just have to be Iman. Maybe your greatest performance is Iman. I heard Eddie Murphy say the yesterday about because he's doing this movie coming back to America, coming back, coming to America number two, the, the yeah. sequel. Anyway, they he said he saw. He's been, he hasn't done a movie for so many years. He's been, uh, they said, well, what happened? He said, oh, I did three bad consecutive movies. That was so embarrassed on them that I said, maybe I should sit this out. So, uh, so that's the thing. I haven't done bad movies, but I knew I was not good at it. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, cut your losses. <laughs> you know, but coming, you, after you retired from fashion, the, the, the 90s were an amazing decade in yep. fashion creatively. And then since the turn of the century, we've seen fashion really having to respond to the real world mm -hmm. and really having to take on board enormous issues that maybe it had avoided before. Yep. And I guess uh, discrimination is one of them. 
So when you look at the industry now, what do you think the, the biggest changes are, especially over the last couple of years, especially last year with, with BLM, Black Lives Matter, yeah. and, um, and then the climate crisis before then, that fashion now has a real activist element. Yes. To have an activist, because that's what people demand from it. Exactly. And I think uh, the change was, uh, was forced upon fashion. Mm -hmm. They were not ready for it. They, they, were, they, they were changed by kicking and screaming, right? So I, I don't feel optimistic about that, uh, because if that didn't happen, like single-handedly, the murdering of George Floyd changed the world so to speak, and of course changed fashion because it then people started actually demanding and, and not even demanding, but putting a light on what was going on. And so I think then the change immediately happened. And when change immediately happens, that people have not thought it through before and all that, some of us say, well, it, any change is good change. Granted, but I, I don't feel optimistic about it because I want them to really to really put people in places, in the decision-making places, right? Not to give a black model a cover and, you know, and then call it a day, uh, uh, you know, but, but to make it in, in those decision-making positions so that real change can happen. And, and, and I'm not talking about tokenism also, you know, it's not like saying, oh yeah, well, we'll put it somebody so that we'll say, okay, we have somebody. The New York Times just did a whole article you know, talking about step by step what has happened since all this has happened. And, you know, there's not that much change, mm, right? Mm. Uh, and so that is what, it's real concrete changes. And as I said, it's not about tokenism, it's about people who are really qualified for the job to be given the opportunity to be on the job. And this is what we've been talking about for years and years about it. You know, Bethan and I have been talking about diversity and inclusion in fashion industry since the 80s, right? We created the Black Girls Coalition and have brought in all the models, all the Black models in the fold who was working at that time from Tyra Banks, Naomi Campbell, uh, Karen Alexander, all the models. But we were talking about not only for Black models, we were talking about also Black creatives, the hairdressers, the makeup artists, the stylists, the photographers. That is what it's really now the little bit of a change you're seeing. You're seeing the first black photographer taking the cover of Vanity Fair. The fact, mm -hmm. you know, you're seeing those changes because mm -hmm. the, the creatives are there. Mm -hmm. Is they never been hired or nobody's even even said, I would like to see your portfolio. I'd like to see different people's portfolio. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you talked about when you when you were when, when you were becoming big, you and Beverly Johnson were played off again against each other as a sort of either or situation, yeah. not both either or. Yeah. When you look around you now though, with say what Edward Innenfull is doing, yes. with British Vogue, yeah. you see a lot more uh, people of color in magazine pages. Yeah. Does that, do you feel good when you, when you see that? Do you feel yes, like when you started your coalition with Beth Ann, this is kind of what you wanted to see. Yeah, do but you feel optimistic or do you feel it? Do you still feel this tokenism or what? No, no, no. I still feel optimistic about spe specifically what uh, Edward Enenfull is doing, right? Because he's been doing that since even when he was a stylist. Yeah. Right. So it's not something new to him. It's the periphery, you know, is we've been, been talking about that, about when when big companies get into trouble, like the Pradas and you saw Gucci at one moment, you know, so you saw H&M. You know, the, the, why aren't there people who are actually in the, in the position of the decision-making that things like that could, should not be happening? But when I'm talking about the Black Girls Coalition with Beth Ann, I mean, that was in the 80s and things a little bit changed, but then they closed. Mm, and yeah. even in 2013, Beth Ann and I saw an article in the New York Times said, this is 2013, it said the blonde leading the blonde. And in the article was the absence of black models across the board in that season, in Europe and in America, like they did not exist. And then we find out that Prada, this is 2013, that Prada didn't use a black model for six years, mm. that Celine never used a black model, right? So, you know, and that's 2013. And, and then we decided that we were gonna write to the CFDA and Naomi Campbell, Beth Ann and I, the three of us, took upon us that to write to the CFDA 
and to the also to, to all the designers in Europe on talking about specifically about that. And what was the problem at that time, which was addressed by the way, was that most designers have started to have more shows than possible in a year. Mm. So the designers who used to be able to see, do their own casting, right? Hired casting agents. Mm. So the casting agent becomes the person who is between, before you see the, before you see the, the designer. So the, the, you know, the, the designer tells the casting agent what he's looking for, what the show is about that season, blah, 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 go find me the girls. And the casting agent became so full of themselves that they would say to the agencies, we're not, we don't want any black models this season, like as if we are a trend. Mm -hmm. And that is what happened. So when we focus the highlight, the three of us, Naomi, Bethann and I, when we focus the highlight of what was going on and where the problem is, it wasn't about saying uh, designers are racist, is that we wanted to highlight the designers that what these casting agents that they're hiring, what they're doing on behalf of them, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, you, would, you cannot believe the shift and the change. It was palpable. It was like a switch happened. And then all of a sudden you started seeing in editorial, the black models, you saw it in advertisement, black models. The change became real because all of a sudden designers were aware, became aware of what was going on. And I've always said, nobody, nobody is busier than Tom Ford and he does his own casting, <laughs> yeah. you know? Uh, so, it, so they became aware of what was going on behalf of their name and what, what was being, you know, perpetuated. So, so that happened, but then what happens is like, we all know what happens is that things change and then they to go back. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So that is why, why I'm saying that what's happening now, this change that is forced upon them. I hope that they see and learn something from it. That if, if nothing else, I'm talking about from a business woman's point of view, it's good business. It's just good business. If you don't think about it black and white, just think about business. And and the change has to be, it, it can't be forced. It is, it is forced, but ultimately it has to be an organic change. So exactly. you're seeing, you know, the, the most incredible talents in fashion right now are stylists like Ibrahim Kamara and mm -hmm. photographers like Tyler Mitchell, Campbell Addy, all these young guys coming through and they're just... You know, in a, in a set, the, the, what you what you want the world to be is is where the color of their skin is incidental. It's just their incredible talent. So you know, it's like just be open. Like as I said about my paintings, you know, you don't have to be good at it, but just be open, right? Love what you do. <laughs> yeah. But where 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 is your activism focus now? Where are those instincts? Focus. I know you were working with the Hawa Abdi Foundation in Somalia. Yeah that, yeah, that was specifically in Somalia. No, I have never, I've always been uh, moved uh, by organizations that help women and girls. Because when I became a refugee, one of the things that it occurred to me, it was like how those non-government organizations on the ground in Kenya, if they did not protect me, I, I'm quite certain that something would have happened to me. I was too young of a girl to be on my own, right? Sexual harassment, rape, anything could have happened to me if they, were, they checked on me three times a day, right? They made sure that if I needed a job, they'll go with me, right? So I have never forgotten the kindness of those angels that walk among us. And so I've always taken that with me and it, it informed all the philanthropic work I do is usually geared towards women and girls and they're empowering, empowering them. And um, so I became for the first time uh, for them and for me, I've never associated myself with one organization only, but I became the global advocate for CARE. CARE, or CARE is the oldest organization and it started in 1970, I mean, it started 75 years ago as the World War II was finishing with the horrific um, hunger that was happening in Europe. They started in America, what, is, what was called then the care package. And, and it has become like a synonymous word for now in our 
language, the care package. And the care package was putting a package of food that you select and you're sending it to Europe. And so they have been doing this now around the world in terms of taking care of uh, different parts of the world. And so I came on board specifically actually to, uh, uh, I mean, I'm highlighting mostly the, the work for women and girls and the empowering women and girls across the board. Because what I find, especially in, in my continent in Africa, is that if you empower a woman, she is, she is gonna empower and take care of her family and her community and hence the, the country. That is given. And in the pandemic that's happening now, they are the care, the help, most of the health workers in, in, in Africa are women, right? So, so and they're the ones who are still at, at the home front. And so, uh, so that is where my, my work now has gone into is helping care. You know, the, the, it's it's so interesting in fashion when we've had um, Alec Weck, we've had Aduta Cash, women of color who become incredibly successful as models who were refugees. Yes. And there's that thing that people say about refugees is that they're born nomads, mm -hmm. and and actually they're always they're never they're never home. And I wonder if you if you feel like that that your story is a bit like that as well as a yeah not only as a refugee but Somalis are nomads anyway <laughs> we are an, a country that uh, uh, of nomads but uh, what happens to a refugee and this is what I've always wanted to make sure the especially the West and especially how immigration now it's thought about a bad thing right is that no person wants to become a refugee. I am the face of a refugee, you know? So it's not that we wanna be in countries that, uh, that we feel foreign, that are not accepted, that we are away from our, from our loved ones. Uh, this is not the ideal life we wanted for ourselves, but that is what happens. People are persecuted or there is a reasons that they leave home and, and, and look for shelter somewhere else. And there are people who have been uh, uh, in, in, in refugee camps all their lives, are born in refugee camp, grow up in refugee camp and still are refugee, refugee camp. Nobody wants to be in that situation. Trust me, if they could go home, they would all wanna go home. Because one thing I will tell you, with everything I have made uh, of myself and money and whatever, when my mom was passing away six years ago, the only thing she wanted was to be buried in Somalia. That's a refugee the longing to be home again, but you can't, right? So for, for first, for people to understand the plight of a refugee, it's not we wanna be here. We just have to be here, right? And most of us actually become part and parcel of the countries that hosts us. We really, really become part. Like I'm a Somali, but I'm an American because that's the place that took me in, right? So, uh, so that's the plight of a refugee. And I, I really want, especially in the immigration and the, the world of how people are thinking of immigrants is to really, for them to really think it and have an empathy of understanding of why people become refugees. And are you home now? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't think I'll ever be home, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, wherever now my daughter is, is home. You know, I, I have two, two daughters. Uh, but also I have a son, David's son. So, so we're all close family. Uh, I talk to everybody on Sundays, um, uh, FaceTime. One of the things that have come out of this is like, actually, I haven't seen them, but I FaceTime them more than I've ever FaceTimed them. <laughs> I do paintings with my, my, my grandchild, who's three years old, from my older daughter. Do we, do paint, we paint together every Sunday. <laughs> so... So that's what has come up. But as a, as a Somali refugee, am I home? No. Well, Iman, thank you so thank much. Thank you, thank you. It's lovely to see you and do not cut your hair. <laughs> no. All my love and um, stay safe and well. And I hope I see Soon. you. Soon, as they say, inshallah. That's what Muslims say, inshallah. Thank you, thank you very much. If you're not yet a BOF professional member, podcast listeners can benefit from a 25% discount on your first year of an annual membership using the code PODCASTPRO. That's PODCASTPRO. 
BOF podcast is edited and produced by Venetia Van Horn Alcama, Kate Varshan, and Kevin Bobby Blanco in the BOF studio team. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.